Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, and for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they had said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. The late R.C. Sproul says of the resurrection, The resurrection was God the Father's way of authenticating all of the truths that were declared by Jesus. And so while you have your Bibles out, please uh, actually turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be looking at a couple of things uh, there in a moment, but today um, we are finally wrapping up this long-running series um, on the Gospel of Mark t- titled Following Jesus, a series that we began in October of 2018. And after 2020, that seems like a lifetime ago almost. But it's been about two and a half years, and it's a series that now has spanned 88 individual sermons. And if you know me, that's more than 88 hours of preaching. Notice nobody said amen, right? (laughs) All right. (laughs) Now, as we began this series, if you remember, in an effort to learn more about discipleship and ask the question, really, what does it mean and what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to be His disciple? And and, and we began this series with three primary goals, three things that we wanted to accomplish. Number one is if you were someone who has not come to faith in Christ, our aim was to make sure that you clearly and emphatically heard the gospel so that you could repent and believe the gospel. The second goal was that if you were in Christ, our goal has been all along is to help you grow in your knowledge of Christ and what it means to be His disciple. And then the third goal that we've had is for those who are in Christ and who are growing, is we want to help you and encourage you to take action based on the things that you learn. We want to help you to get busy living the life and the calling to follow Jesus Christ. And over two and a half years, we've repeatedly proclaimed the gospel, and we have taught more and more about who Christ is and who you are in light of who Christ is. And we have exhorted and encouraged everyone who will listen to jump all the way in and join Christ's mission to bring salvation to the lost. And I have personally been blessed to walk through the gospel of Mark with you all. In fact, I was talking to the worship team just before we started, you know, 
closing this chapter is almost bittersweet for me. I've learned so much and grown so much through my time in the Word, and it's been a privilege to, to exposit the text for you. In fact, uh, I have to you know, kind of like share with you kind of like what John MacArthur does. What you're getting is the overflow, right? I really get the benefits of hours and hours in the Word. You're getting the fruit of that. Um, so it's been, a, it's a, been a wonderful book for me personally. But today, we're going to conclude this series here on Easter. And uh, as we're looking at the resurrection that took place that first Sunday after Christ's death. And today, we're going to end this series really the same way that we began this series. Again, with the same three goals. And so I'm, I'm going to let you know right up front, when we get to the end of this thing, we're coming back to where we started. If you're someone who does not know Christ, right, and, and, or you maybe have experienced you know, an emotional, what you thought, conversion, but nothing happened in your life, you realize there was no repentance and faith, we're going to call you to believe the gospel and to be saved. Right? Secondly, I'm going to call you again, if you know Christ, to grow in your understanding, to take the truths that you're going to learn and, and let them sink into your heart and take root. And then finally, if you're a believer, I want you to realize you weren't saved so that you can just simply be saved. You were saved to be involved in the mission of Christ to bring hope to the rest of the world. And so we will end in the same place we began. In fact, for us to understand how this gospel ends, we actually need to go back to the beginning, at least briefly. So turn with me to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verse 1. Mark, in his gospel, wrote, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see that Mark actually opens his letter declaring that he's writing about the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus himself proclaimed and even said. That the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is here, and the time is now, and the way into the kingdom, the way to get entrance into the kingdom and be saved is through what? Repentance and faith in the good news about Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, repent and believe the good news. Well, what is the good news? Well, Mark tells us what the good news is about. Mark said in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That right there, brothers and sisters, is the good news. That's the sum total of it right there. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You see, God the Son entered into time and space and then took upon Himself a human nature to come and be with us and to walk alongside us. And He did so in order to do for us all the things that we could not do for ourselves. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. He kept the law that was impossible for us to keep. He fulfilled the covenant that all of us have broken. And He died on the cross, bearing in His body the full weight of the wrath of God that we rightfully deserve. And then He made payment for all of our sins. That is the good news about the Son of God. It is the most incredible rescue mission in all of human history that God Himself came to save us. And Mark opens his gospel and declares that Jesus is not simply a prophet, that Jesus is not some, some teacher, that He is not just some moral man that, that we need to emulate. He's not just a wonderful example of humanity. Jesus is none other than uh, the Son of God Himself. He is divinity in the flesh. 
that Jesus is the only mediator, the only mediator, because he is truly God and truly man. That right there, brothers and sisters, is the thesis of Mark's gospel. That is the point that he actually set out to prove from the very beginning, that Jesus is in fact God the Son. And he, and he spends the rest of his gospel doing just that, right? He spends the rest of his gospel proving that point, and I believe he successfully does so. In fact, throughout the gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus is given the divine attribute of omniscience, that he is all-knowing. We see it over and over in the scriptures. In Mark chapter 2, we see very clearly as the paralytic man is told that his sins are forgiven, the scribes around them start thinking to themselves, he can't do that, that's blasphemy. And Jesus answers them knowing omnisciently their thoughts. In Mark chapter 6, we see how Jesus is on a mountaintop at night and he can, he can see his disciples are struggling for their lives two miles away on the middle of a lake in the middle of a storm because he omnisciently knows these things. Mark chapter 14, Jesus predicts both the betrayal of Judas and also the denial of Peter. And throughout the gospel, we, we read about Jesus knowing the thoughts of other men. Mark makes it clear that Jesus is omniscient, that he is all-knowing. But also Mark makes a point to record dramatic events that help us to see that Jesus is also omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Like when Jesus calmly walks on the water in the middle of a storm. Or like twice when Mark records for us how the wind and the waves himself obey the very command of God. Jesus calms a storm simply by speaking a word and it obeys him. Or how about when Jesus demonstrates he has the power to create as he feeds thousands of people with a couple of fish and a few small loaves of bread, and he did that not once, but twice. Not to mention all the hundreds of demons that he cast out and all of the afflictions that he healed people of. Also, to add to that resume, bringing people back from the dead. Or how about when Jesus cursed the fig tree and he withered away all the way to the root just by speaking a word to it. And if that was not enough, Jesus proved by His power that He has the divine right to forgive sins. Mark makes it clear, he paints a picture that Jesus is divine and all-powerful. Mark records many events in the life of the ministry of Christ, and he leaves no doubt of who he really is. And if we consider all these things, if you have been here and read the text with us, you will come away with the conviction that Jesus is, in fact, the sovereign king of creation. And he is unflappable, he is unstoppable, he is undefeatable, and he's undeniable. In fact, his enemies couldn't even touch him, as we saw. They couldn't even touch him until he was ready for them to take him. He was fully in control, and he allowed what, what happened to happen so that the redemption, the plan of redemption could be fulfilled. Mark has successfully proven his point in his thesis. The truth is, if, if we're to stop right there, I want you to realize, if Mark stopped there, Mark has given us more than enough evidence to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. There's more than enough that we've covered to this point to agree with Mark's assessment. He's given us plenty of ample historical evidence to compel us to believe the gospel. Right? Mark has, at this point, already proven his case, the case for Christ being truly human and truly divine. That case is overwhelming. But then something happened. We come to the point in the narrative where Christ didn't ascend to the throne of David as all those around him were expecting him to do. They were hoping that he would come and 
and save Israel from Roman oppression. Instead, what happened? He was arrested and he was, he was killed. The long-awaited for Messiah had been captured by his enemies and put to death like so many would-be messiahs before him. Jesus was verifiably dead in the grave. Again, this is an undisputable historical fact. And for those around him, it seemed that all hope was lost. In fact, I want you to hear me. If the story had ended here, Mark's case for Jesus being divine would still be proven, but Mark's, Mark's case for Jesus being God would still be true. But the thing that we need to realize, if this story ended here, if Jesus would still be in the grave, this story actually for us would be pointless to us. Because if Christ and His humanity is still in the grave, we would have no hope. In fact, Paul makes that very clear. One of the differences between Christianity and all other faiths is Christianity has the ability to be tested. And Paul gives us the test. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. He goes on to say, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Even the Bible makes it very clear for us. If Christ is not resurrected, we have no hope. Even if Jesus is God, it is not enough for us for Him to just come and be an example for us. As many people in our culture want to say, it's not enough for Him to walk in our shoes. It is not enough for Him to come and teach us how to love one another. Those are important things, but that is not enough. It's not enough that He came to be with us and to sympathize with us and suffer with us. If Christ is not raised, we have no hope. But Mark finishes his gospel And he finishes building his case by recording for us the historical event that happened that first Sunday after Jesus died. The historical fact that Jesus Christ literally and physically rose from the dead. Do you understand that? 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ literally and physically was resurrected back to life. Mark records for us, like the other Gospels, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the central truth that gives all of us our hope. But but understand, Mark doesn't just record this event for us. He just didn't say he is risen. He actually gives us clear pieces of historical evidence that transcend simply just having faith. Pieces of evidence that you can actually grab a hold of and hold on to and stand firm on and believe the truth about Jesus Christ. In fact, it has been said multiple times by many scholars that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, in fact, the best attested to historical event in all of antiquity. 
There's not an event in all of history, in ancient history, that is better, that has better evidence and attestation than the resurrection of Christ. And Mark gives us a number of things to think about. So turn with me to Mark chapter 16, and we'll finish this, this journey together. Mark writes, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene married the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now, this expression, when the Sabbath was passed, means that when the Sabbath was over. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a tendency to read these things with Western eyes and a Western point of view, and I just make a lot of assumptions. And I just assume that very early in the morning they went to do this, but that's not actually what happened. Notice what it says, when the Sabbath was passed. And what we need to realize is the Sabbath, it actually ended or was passed on Saturday evening. And sunset, that's correct. And what we need to realize is in Jerusalem, shops would open up at sunset for a few hours so that people could go do business that they couldn't do during the Sabbath, right? They were closed for the Sabbath and they opened for a few hours so people can go buy the things that they need or do what they needed to do. And so it is Saturday evening and these three women go out and buy spices and the materials they need to help take care of the body of Christ. And historically speaking, the spices that they're buying is not to embalm the body of, of, of Jesus. What we need to realize is they didn't practice embalming in Judaism. They actually would wrap their loved ones in fragrant spices in order to help mask the odor of decomposition. That was really the purpose of what they were doing. It was an act of, of love and devotion to the ones that they, that they had lost who were deceased. These women went out of love for Christ the moment that they could to go buy the materials that they needed to, to take care of him. Now, we might wonder why they would need to do something since, you know, as we talked about a few weeks ago, Joseph of Arimathea had already prepared the body for burial. Well, as we talked about, and if you remember, Joseph and his helpers had very little time to actually prepare the body. They had to basically take him now off the cross. They had to wash him and then wrap him and pack him in spices. And they really had about two hours to do all of this. And so these women were probably thinking, let's go get the things that we need and then let us go back to the tomb and take our time and properly prepare our loved one for, for his time in the tomb. This was an act of, of deep love and reverent respect. And so at the very first opportunity, they go out and buy the spices they need the night before. Now, what does this simple detail tell us? Well, it tells us a couple of really important things. Number one, it tells us very clearly that they knew that Jesus was, was dead. And, and, I, and that might not seem like an issue to you, but for a lot of people in history, that's an important issue um, because some people would want to say that he, has, he fainted or he swooned. The fact of the matter is he was dead, verifiably so. They saw him die. They watched his body prepared and laid in the tomb. So they knew for a fact that this was not a case of, you know, fainting from his injuries. He was dead. And, and, and so the theory that Jesus somehow passed out, you know, and wasn't dead simply just doesn't hold water. And in fact, the fact of the matter is, is if there was something that the Romans were really good at, was killing people, Right? I mean, they, they, were, they were experts in that, and they knew when somebody was verifiably dead. And so these women, they actually witnessed him die and him being removed from the cross, and they witnessed him being laid in the tomb. Number two, it also tells us that not only did they know, know that he was dead, but they also were not expecting him to come back. They were expecting him to remain dead. 
right? And this is an important for us to understand as well. They were expecting him, you know, to be there and not come back from the grave. Otherwise, if you think about this, if they were expecting him to rise at any moment, they wouldn't go spend all that money to buy the spices they need to, to take care of him because those kinds of materials were expensive in that time, especially the aromatic spices. You know, think about a culture that no one ever really takes showers all the time and there's no deodorant. You know, you know, aromatic things are really at a premium. This is the truth that we all need to understand. No one was expecting Christ to come back from the dead. Right? Even after he had said, by the way, multiple times, he told his disciples ahead of time that he would come back three days later, but no one believed it. Now, why is this important? Well, I want you to realize this reflects the theology of, of the Jewish people at the time. You see, the Jewish people did expect a resurrection at some point in the future, but a general resurrection at the end of history when all men gets resurrected and God comes back and judges and sets all things right, you know, and that people are judged according for what they did. They expected a resurrection then. They expected the same kind of resurrection we expect. At some point in time, right, when Christ finishes His work, that, that we will all stand before God in our bodies, and He's going to then judge the quick and the dead, as the, as the Scriptures tell us. Now, the Jews look forward to a great resurrection at the end, but not one in the middle of history. They were not expecting Jesus to rise after three days. So this tells us that this resurrection is not just in some part of a Jewish narrative. These, these Jewish disciples didn't make this up out of thin air then. Someone also would say that, well, the, the resurrection, the idea of the resurrection has been made up by the Romans. But the problem with that also is that the, even the Greeks and the Romans didn't expect a resurrection. In fact, they didn't want one. I don't know if you realize, but the Greeks and the Romans at the time were dualists in their in their philosophy, which means they believed in a physical world, and they believed in a spiritual world, and they believed that the physical world is bad, the spiritual is good, and that their only hope was to finally escape the physical world and live forever in a spiritual world. And then the notion of coming back at a resurrection was, was a horrible thought to them. It was a horrible thought to them. They didn't see that it was a profane idea. And so it's safe to say that no one no one expected Jesus to be resurrected. Not the Jews, not the Gentiles, not his friends, not his enemies, not the men, not the women. Nobody was expecting him to come back from the dead. Now, another important thing to notice here in this verse is Mark also makes a point to identify these women by name very clearly. He, he points to their identity. Why does he do that? Number one, this was written in the first century, so that way people would know who they were, and they could go ask them and say, did, did this actually happen? That these were people that the early church could identify and go and actually talk to. That's the first one. But more importantly, he records this fact because it proves that this is not a made-up story. You see, if Jesus' disciples had invented the story of the resurrection, one of the things that they would not have done is they would not have, have made the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ, women. They would not have done that. That's what it was in their culture. They just would not have made them the first eyewitnesses. They would have written a story that men would have been the first eyewitnesses. Or more specifically, they would have made the point to make the disciples the first eyewitnesses, but not women. And the reason for that is because in the first century, the testimony of women was not considered reliable. That's just the way that it was. 
right? Their testimony was not deemed trustworthy in court. And so if, if you were to create a man-made story about Jesus being resurrected, you would, you would you know, not write down that the first three eyewitnesses to the most important event in human history were just a group of common women. But that's how it was recorded here in the text, which also Christianity early on affirmed counter to the culture, the, the value of women. One of the things that we forget, I think, oftentimes in our culture now is that women and children had been elevated in status, in culture, because of the Christian faith. I think we lose sight of that. The rest of the world is not like this. We take for granted the fact that the Bible helps us to see the equality of men and women. But here in the text, all four of the Gospels confirm that it was these women who were the first eyewitnesses. While the disciples hid behind closed doors as cowards running for their lives, these three women, as soon as the Sabbath was over, go into the city to buy spices, and as a result, they become the first witnesses to the resurrection. This piece of evidence, by the way, is compelling enough for many skeptical scholars to concede that this makes it very tough to deny the resurrection of Christ. Because again, if you were going to write a story, this wasn't how you'd write the story. But then... Again, it says, And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they, the women, went to the tomb. Now these details might seem incidental, but, but, they, are, but they are not incidental. These details themselves tell a story. The first day of the week, as we know, is, is Sunday, which is the third day after Friday. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The third day, Jesus promised He would rise again. And so Sunday is the third day. And by the way, this is why we worship on Sunday and not Saturday. Every once in a while, you'll run into someone who will bump heads with you and say, you guys are doing it wrong. You're supposed to be worshiping on the Sabbath, not on Sunday. But I want you to understand, from the very first resurrection Sunday, the church every Sunday worshiped on Sunday. And Sunday became known as the Lord's Day. Every Sunday, from that time forward to this, this point, the church has gathered for worship because of what? The most important event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it is Sunday morning here in Jerusalem. And notice it says, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Again, this is another important detail. You see, one of the arguments that some people have proposed in the past is that the women couldn't find the body because they they went to the wrong tomb because, you know, there's just so many open tombs laying around. Well, the problem with this is twofold. Number one is just on Friday, Mark tells us that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, or also the mother of James, saw where he was laid. Mark tells us the women witnessed with their own eyes where Jesus had been placed. And so it's not likely they're going to rely on secondhand information. It's not like somebody gave them the wrong address to the, to the tomb. They actually witnessed it with their own eyes where the tomb was. Number two, they had come when the sun was up. And so they had plenty of light to be able to see where they were going and make sure that they were in the right place. It's not like they were fumbling around in the dark trying to secretly find the tomb and they stumbled in the wrong place. They saw where he was laid and it's light enough to be able to see where they were going. The fact is, the lost tomb theory is just one of those ones that gets dispelled very, very easy. These women knew that where the tomb was, 
and there was plenty of light for them to find it, and that's as they did. The only question they really had was this. Verse 3, it says, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? You see, Jesus' tomb was not just some hole that was dug in the dirt and then He was placed in there and covered over. His tomb was carved out of the rock. It was a cave that was carved into the side of a large rock or, or hillside. And what... And, and, this, and this, this opening then was sealed with a large stone that we rolled into place over the entrance of the tomb. And what we need to realize about that big, large stone, it would actually rest in a little channel or track that was dug into the stone in front of the entrance. And it was also dug slightly downhill so that the stone wouldn't accidentally roll backwards. Right? And so it would make this really extremely hard to actually remove and so this, they had a valid concern, right? Only, right, how, once they got there, how were they going to be able to remove this massive stone, right? Who would be available to help them remove it? Perhaps they could, you know, play on the sympathies of the Roman soldiers to ask them just to remove it long enough to be able to put the spices on them. Or maybe they could ask some, some Jewish men who might have come to, you know, pay their respects to Jesus. One way or the other, they were hoping some way for someone to be able to help them remove this stone, which again also helps us to do away with the theory that somehow his disciples secretly took his body at nighttime. Because first of all, how are you going to clandestinely remove you know, a stone that's over a thousand pounds quietly enough to not disturb the Roman soldiers who are stationed outside keeping watch over the tomb? Again, Historically speaking, it doesn't hold any water. Right? The stone was too big of an obstacle, and it was certainly too big of an obstacle for these three women, and so they were wondering who could help them. But then verse 4, it tells us, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. By the time they got to the tomb, the massive, tomb, the massive stone had already been rolled out of the way. It had been removed for them, which was a surprise. Because the question they would have, then who remove it? Now, one of the issues that we have sometimes when we read the text like this is the fact that we are reading this in our native language, English. Because we read the words here, it says, the stone had been rolled back, and we're going, okay, it was rolled back. What does that mean? Actually, our English language doesn't even give us a hint to how it was rolled back. It just said that it was rolled back. But in the Greek, what you don't realize is Mark actually uses specific language and grammar to give a glimpse to how the stone actually is rolled away. The vocabulary of how he, he structures the sentence here and the words that he uses actually makes it clear that this was not rolled back by any human. It was rolled back by divine power. That's the only conclusion you can come to if you read it in the Greek. The Greek makes it clear the stone was moved supernaturally. The stone was not simply rolled back by a group of men you know, checking on Jesus. The stone had been rolled away by God Himself is the implication of the text. Mark makes it really, really clear that the stone being moved is divine action. And what we need to realize is why the stone is rolled away. Have you ever thought about that? Why would God remove the stone? What we need to realize is it's not to allow Jesus' resurrected body out, as we encounter in Mark, I mean, not Mark, but uh, John, that Jesus can appear in locked rooms, right? So it wasn't to allow 
the resurrected Christ out, it was to allow his followers to come in and see that he was not there. The stone was removed to give us a witness to the fact that the tomb was empty. In fact, verse 5, it says, In entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in white robes, and they were alarmed. Now, in English, it says a young man, but Mark is not actually saying a human person. He is using metaphorical language, but he is clearly talking about an angel. It's the clear implication of the white robes, and it's the clear implication of what the other Gospels also say as well. These women walk into the tomb and they encounter the, an angel of God. And how do they respond? Well, they respond like everyone who ever encounters an angel. They're terrified. I don't know if you ever noticed that. We always have these pictures of these really cute little cherub-type angels that are floating around. But everybody who ever encounters one is never like going, oh, cute little angel. They're always like terrified. Yeah. In fact, you see that actually there's parallels to this particular account here. When Christ was, was going to come in the world, what did God do? He sent an angel to announce his arrival to his mother, Mary. Now, when Christ is resurrected, God sends an angel to announce that to Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph and Salome. Right? An angel is pr present to declare the good news in both of these instances. And guess what? In both cases, when the, the angel shows up, what's their response? To be terrified. Right? And in both cases, he has to say the same thing. In verse 6, he said to them, do not be alarmed. Again, that's the universal first thing that all angels have to say to people is don't be afraid. You see, the G and then he says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Now again, this might seem like a superfluous detail, but you have to appreciate the fact that Mike, Mark is not leaving anything to chance here. He identifies very clearly and specifically for these women who they came to seek. You see, the, you see it's not just somebody named Jesus. And by the way, Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua, which was a very common name. Okay. So he didn't just say, hey, you seek Yeshua, because there could have been like a thousand Yeshuas. But he said, you seek Yeshua, the man from Nazareth. Very specific, very clearly. This is the one person you're looking for. And if that was not clear enough, he said, the one who was crucified. That's who you're looking for. Mark makes it very clear that we're not going to get confused in all the details of history of multiple different people called Yeshua. This is the Yeshua from Nazareth who was crucified. And again, this is an important detail for us as Christians because if you ever meet a Muslim, what you'll find out is they have some things in common with us. Did you know that Muslims believe that Jesus was virgin born? They absolutely believe this. It's in, it's in, their, in, in, the, in their texts that Jesus was born of a virgin. They also believe that he was a mighty prophet as well. They believe that, that he was sent from God. They have a high reverence for, for Jesus. But they deny that Jesus died on the cross. That's where, they, where, where the commonalities end. Is they, that they, believe he died on, they, they don't believe he died on the cross. In fact, they don't believe he died at all. They believe somebody was an imposter on the cross. But here, an angel of the Lord himself is confirming specifically that the person they're seeking is the man, Jesus Christ from Nazareth, who died on a Roman cross. He says, that's who you're looking for. You see, God gives us all the tools we need apologetically in advance to be able to defend our faith. But then he says, he has news that they're not expecting to hear. He said, 
the most glorious words ever uttered by an angel or by a man. He said, He has risen. He is not here. Church family, if you could just take a hold of that truth and lock that away in your hearts. He has risen. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the spotless Lamb who was slain for you has risen. Jesus, the one who lived a perfect life, securing for you a righteousness that's not your own and died bearing the weight of your sins, He is risen. Do you realize that the, the, your hope and the hope of your, the entire world, the hope that transcends all of the politics, the hope that transcends the pandemic, the hope that transcends all that you're going through in your individual lives, the only hope that the world has is not dead and in the grave. That hope is risen. Do you know what that means? That means Jesus is exactly what Mark said he was, that he is the Son of God. That means Jesus is exactly what he claimed to be, and he said, I am the great I am, God incarnate. But as we know, Mark already proved that. But what's important is the resurrection only proves that Jesus is what he claimed to be and what Mark said he was, but it also proves that Jesus can deliver on the promises that he made to you. That he can, he, can, he can deliver on the promise to do what he said he would do for you. And what he promised was to save you from your sins and to spare you from the wrath of God. The resurrection is proof that Christ's righteousness is sufficient to reconcile us back to God. That, he, that the life he lived is enough. It's proof that the atonement for our sins was enough to satisfy the justice of God. It proves that Jesus is both the just and the justifier for those who believe. The resurrection of Christ not only is the best attested to historical event in all of antiquity, it is definitive proof that Christ has, that all that he has promised to us is true and all the promises of God are true. Again, as R.C. Sproul says, the resurrection of the resurrection was God the Father's way of authenticating all the truths that were declared by Jesus. Well, what did he declare? Well, Jesus declared that he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus said, I came to give them life and life abundantly. Jesus promised, I will be with you even to the end of the age. He promised that he'll never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said, if you believe in me, though you die, you will live. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus said, all who come to me, who are weary and heavy laden, come and I will give you rest. Jesus promised and said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have. In that moment, they believe eternal life. And he said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And he promised, here's the promise, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that everything that Jesus promised is true. You can depend on it. You can trust it which means you can trust Him to save you. And you can trust Him to change you 
progressively, little by little, from the inside out, creating in you a new heart, making you into the image of Christ, helping you to love the God that you once hated and helping you to hate the sin that you once loved. It also means that you can trust Him to work all things out for your good as, as, as Romans 8.28 promises. That for those who love God and called according to His purpose, all things... Hear me, church family. After the year we've been through, okay, hear me about this. The word promises that all things work out for good for those who love God and called according to His purpose. That means all things. That means the good things and the not-so-good things. That means the stuff that you've gone through that's made your heart hurt and your stomach wrenched, where you've cried your eyes out and you can't even possibly understand how you can carry on. Somehow, someway, God is working that out for your good. And the resurrection is proof positive that you can trust in that. So the next time you step outside and something goes wrong and you get that phone call and it's the worst possible news, or when you get the diagnosis that wasn't what you were expecting, or you find out that someone in your life is doing you the wrong way, that you can stand firmly and confidently know, this is going to hurt, I'm going to cry, but I know for a fact that God has me. He is sovereign and in control, and He's promised me that somehow, someway, this is working out. That is true because Christ is risen. But most importantly... You can trust Him to see you safely home. Because this is not our home. We're going to spend here 80 years maybe. Right? And sometimes a little longer. But for some of those that we've lost, a lot shorter. None of us are getting out of here alive. We're all headed to the same place. The only question that's going to be asked when we get there is what have we done with Christ? When you trust Christ, all that's taken care of, you can live the rest of your life glorifying Him because you know He's there to carry you home. That's what the angel's declaring. He is risen. He is no longer in the tomb. He's certainly not on that cross. By the way, that's why we have an empty cross. Okay? The work has been done and it has been finished. But then notice, the angel doesn't just say that. He, he proves that. Right? He shows them. He says, see the place where they laid him? He shows them the empty tomb. Again, another immutable historical fact. The tomb was empty, brothers and sisters. All of the scholars today have to admit that it was empty. Now, they have different theories of how it got empty. But the fact of the matter is it was empty. People have been rationalizing it for 2,000 years. By the way, all of the theories don't hold any water, and every credible scholar admits that. But you still have to deal with the empty tomb. It's a fact of history, because the fastest way to end the whole Christian experiment would have been what? Produce the body. Any Jewish scribe or Roman soldier could have put an end to this whole Christian experiment by simply producing the body of Christ, but they couldn't. Why? Because he wasn't there. When the tomb was rolled, when the stone was rolled out of the way of the entrance and the Roman seal was broken and the Roman soldiers outside were laying down as dead men because they were terrified, all that proves the historical fact that Jesus was resurrected. 
Sunday morning, by the sovereign power of God, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was revealed to be empty because he was not there, physically resurrected from the dead. And the angel shows them the truth. But notice he doesn't leave it there, though. He doesn't just stop and say, okay, now go celebrate that he's risen. What does he do? He now he, he tells them what they must do. But go and tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You see, he tells them the good news that Jesus is risen from the dead, and he tells them to go to go spread the good news, to go tell the disciples that, that, the, that the, 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 they have lost hope in Jesus, that He has risen from the dead. But notice He also says to tell Peter. Why say Peter? Because Peter failed miserably, if you remember that. He's saying, tell Peter, by implication, that Peter himself is forgiven. I want you to realize, if Peter can be forgiven for denying Christ at his greatest moment of need, Christ can forgive you anything. The angel says, here's the good news. See for yourself. Believe. And now go and spread the good news. And that right there, brothers and sisters, I think is the perfect place for us to wrap up this sermon and this sermon series. Is this command to go. If you're someone who, who don't believe, I want to just talk to you just briefly. If you're someone who's not put your faith in Christ before, or if you're someone who maybe like when you were a kid, maybe made an emotional profession because grandma really got you worked up to do so, like, like for me, you know? you know? Or maybe you just heard a sermon one time and it pierced your heart and you came forward, but then you realize like nothing in your life has changed because you have not repented and you really have not been believing. Or just perhaps you're somebody who's been like, who like I was when I was an adult, just defiantly refused to believe. It's Easter. And so I just beg you, one time in your life, just listen. Just, just hear me one time. The rest, of the rest of your life, you can ignore me if you'd like to. I want you to hear the words of the gospel, and it's this, simply. You were born into the world, and when you were born, there were two things immutably true about you. There are two things I know for a fact that were true about you. Number one, you were created in the image of God. That's why, by the way, we are pro-life, is because we believe that all human beings are created in the very image of God. Which means, because you're made in the image of God, you have worth. You have intrinsically value in your, within yourself. You are important to us because you're created in the image of our God. And that's why we love you. That's why we can honestly say, when Christians say to unbelievers, we love you, it's not a fake thing, it's a real thing. Why do we love them? Because they're created in the image of God. They're God's creation. Right? And, and the reason that God created you that way is because God, who is holy, righteous, and just, created the entire universe, and He created you to have a relationship with Him. He created you to be close to Him. He created you to be connected to Him. That's the first thing I know about you. The second thing is, you were born into sin. Which means, you by your very nature are corrupt. And not just part of your nature. All of it. Your mind, your reasoning ability, 
your emotions. In fact, your emotions bear witness against you probably more than anything else. How many times in your emotions have you really made some huge mistakes and done some awful things? Right? Your emotions and your flesh itself are all corrupted by sin. And, and this creates a problem for you. These two things actually create a problem for you. You're created for a relationship with God, but you're sinful. Right? The sin actually separates you from the relationship you were created for. And you, by your nature, willfully rebel against God. Nobody makes you do it. In fact, we have some, some young, little youngins that are born into our, our church family recently. And what their parents will find out really, really quick, no one will have to teach them how to lie. Right? No one's going to have to teach them how to be selfish. No one's going to have to teach them how to, to hit and bite and pinch. Right? They figure that out by themselves. It's, right? We are all, by our own nature, willfully rebellious against God. In fact, we regularly and habitually sin against God, even now. That's the nature of who you are. And to make it worse, you can't fix it. You can't take care of it on your own. And this is the greatest trouble that religion gives you. It gives you a hope that somehow, someway, that you, by your own efforts and by your own abilities, are going to do enough stuff to make God love you. You can't do it. Because you can't do enough to overcome the stain of your own sin, and you, most importantly, can't change your own heart. You can't do it. It's impossible. Not a human in, in all of history has been able to change his own heart, which means we're all helpless. But it gets worse because, because the truth is God is holy and righteous and just. And we all know that justice needs to be done. Because if someone does you wrong, you want justice to be done. If someone steals your stuff, you want them to go to jail. If somebody murders one of your family members, you expect the judge to throw the book at them. Why? Because we understand justice. Right? And God is holy, righteous, and just, which means He is going, if you die in your sins, He's going to give you what you deserve, which means you'll face eternity in torment because of your rebellion against God. Not because, you know, you did some bad things, because that's who you are, and that's how bad your sin is. Right? You rightfully, all of us rightfully deserve that. But then, the good news, the gospel is that God in His great mercy and His great love and His overwhelming grace by His own will made a plan and a way for us to be reconciled and be saved. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be your representative. Jesus came to do what you couldn't do for yourself. He lived the perfect sinless life that you couldn't live and upheld the law that you couldn't uphold. And He fulfilled the covenant of works that all of mankind has failed to keep since Adam in the garden. Christ lived the righteous, perfect life in your place, and He secured for you a righteous standing that you're going to need to stand in the presence of God. But then He willingly went to the cross in your place, and on the cross He bore in His body the full wrath, the full punishment you rightfully deserve. God's hatred for your sin was poured out on His own Son. Why? So that you could be washed clean. Christ died in your place. And then, three days later, God the Father raised God the Son back to life, proving that the payment was accepted, that the check on your behalf cleared, 
that the way for man to God is open. And all you have to do to have your sins washed away, to be made new and clothed in the righteousness of Christ and have eternal life is to repent and believe the gospel. Now people get hung up on the word repent like, okay, I need to be perfect. No, that's not what that means at all. It means to turn. It means to turn from your self-reliance and your self-righteousness and your old life and turn towards God and believe the only promise that will get you anywhere and that's the promise that Christ will save you. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ. Place all your hope and trust in Him. And the promise is that if you will do that, He will save you, not may save you. He will save you, and He has the power to keep you saved. That's the promise, that if we are in the hands of God, if we are in His hands, no one can snatch us out of His hands. And that's the promise that's laid bare for you right now, today. And so my urging to you, my my heartfelt admonition for you, I'm begging you, repent and believe the gospel today. Put your faith in Christ and live. And if you are ready to do that today, come and see me or one of the, the deacons in this church would be happy to talk with you individually. I'm not about making a show out of a person's profession of faith. It's a very personal thing, and some people are afraid and timid and have lots of questions. I'm here to help you walk down that path. But I want more than anything else for everyone in this room to know for a fact that every one of you are on your way someday to meet Christ face-to-face in joy. Now, for those who are in Christ, I hope that our time together, you have grown. My admonition is to continue to grow. Read the Word. Study the Word. Be in prayer. Get alone with God every day. God has invited you into the relationship. The God that created the entire cosmos invited you personally into a relationship. And when you take time to meet with Him, He is there to meet with you. And He speaks to you through His Word, and He hears your prayers. Do you understand that, brothers and sisters? When you stop and you pray that the God in heaven that created the vast expanse of galaxies, the universe that's 93 billion light years across, that God who stands outside of space and time knows you and individually hears your prayers and cares for you. Spend that time with Him. And then, the last thing I want to admonish you to, for those who have been growing, it's time to get involved. Right? You have been brought from death to life and He has given you this gift, not simply so you can hold on to it, but to go give it away. Brothers and sisters, what our community needs more than ever is Jesus Christ. What your friends and your neighbors need more than anything else is Jesus Christ. Those people around you whose marriages are falling apart, they need Jesus Christ. The addict that that you avoid and don't want to talk to because you know they're going to ask you for money, he needs Jesus Christ. The person that you can't stand and haven't talked to in 25 years needs your grace and forgiveness, but more importantly, they need Jesus Christ. And Christ has called all of us to be part of that life-saving mission. So this Easter, if you would, maybe one time commit to going sharing the hope of Christ with someone you know. I promise you, if, if God goes before you and has prepared their hearts, you will not fail. 
Your job, as we say around here over and over again, is not to convince people. Your job is to sow the seed, love the people, pray that God changes their heart, and then never give up on them. Church family, let us be about that this Easter and beyond. And by the way, I am praising the Lord that we are here this Easter, right? Right? Last year we didn't meet here, and here we are now. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.